Welcome to Eccentric Earth, the podcast where I, your host Amy Walker, delve into stories from across history with a guest who has no idea what the topic's going to be. And joining me this week is Han Birch. Hello. Hi, thank you for coming back to the show again. Always. Our first guest since our one year anniversary. That was crazy times. (laughs) I was was actually going to mention before we started recording, and it totally slipped my mind, that I know it didn't make it into the finished um, the finished edit of the podcast, but I did want to thank you for when I mentioned that I touched a dead body. Your immediate response wasn't I should be calling the cops, but it was I better turn the recording off so you don't incriminate yourself. And I just yeah. feel like that's a free event. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like, oh, no, I'm in danger. It's shit. I can't get Hannah arrested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True, true friendship. I appreciate yeah. that. I'm a true friend. I would have taken your murderous secret to my grave. <laughs> she she didn't kill anyone, listeners. She don't worry. That you know of. <laughs> oh, and now the fear's back. <laughs> says says the person who's been sending me pictures of knives again today. Don't know what you're talking about. Well, um, I I I'm going to apologise to you and the listeners in advance because um, I I found this amazing person and. I got very excited reading about them. I was like, this story's great. It's it's really cool. i got to tell it. And it wasn't until I was about halfway through the research, I was like, there is an awful lot of Russian names and places oh, no. in this. So, <laughs> oh, I, I am sorry for any mispronunciation that is guaranteed to occur because I'm not going to get through this whole thing correctly. So, yeah, brace yourselves. It's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing about reading crime and punishment to me was just all the names like all the names are impronounceable and everyone has 17 of them yeah i love battle royale and whenever i watch the film it's easy to keep track for some reason i can keep track of who's who when i'm reading the book i just struggle mm. i think because it's written down i'm trying to pronounce it correctly in my head rather yeah. than just hearing people say this is so and so it's like okay now i'm getting a bit foggy who's that and i'm kind of having to sort of skip back a bit <laughs> and to do that in a book the size of uh size of war and peace oh i'll have to borrow that when you're done i didn't realize it was a it was a book too anyway we should start this story yeah we probably should <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is part of brit pod scene an independent network of uniquely british podcasts that's always growing Check out BritPodScene.com or BritPodScene on Twitter to find out more. It's unknown when or where Sidney George Riley was born, as there are several conflicting accounts of his origin. However, it is believed he was born around 1874. He himself told several versions of his origin throughout his life. One said that he was born Georgie Rosenblum, born in Pietrakau to a wealthy contractor and landowner. He also claimed to be the son of an Irish merchant seaman, an Irish clergyman, and an aristocratic landowner connected to the court of Emperor Alex III of Russia. 
According to a Soviet secret police dossier compiled in 1925, he was possibly born Zygmunt Markovich Rosenblum in Odessa. So even the secret police don't know who he is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know it's like it was much easier back then, but that's still pretty... Uh... Yeah, and, and this made the start of this, like compiling this together, very difficult because I didn't know which yeah. ones to go with. Um, I found a few sort of respected historians and, mm -hmm. and writers who seem to kind of share one origin. So it will kind of follow that. Um, and, and that one is him being born Georgie Rosenblum. Yeah. So in that last one, the sequel, born in the secret place, they said his father, uh, was called Marcus and he was a doctor and shipping agent, uh, while his mother came from an impoverished noble family. Other sources claim that he was born Georgie Rosenblum in Odessa in, in 1873. In one account, his birth name is given as Salomon Rosenblum, and yet another source states that he was born Sigmund Georgievich Rosenblum, who was supposed to be the only son of Pauline and Gregory Rosenblum, a wealthy Polish-Jewish family. So... so he was born place at a time to people. So according to his official biographer, uh, Richard B. Spence, details of his education are uncertain. <laughs> Well, it's just like, you know, if you don't know what his name is or when he was born or where he was born, yeah. it's pretty likely that you're not going to know where he went to school either. <laughs> yeah. He said, despite later claims, he did not attend Heidelberg or Cambridge universities or the Royal School of Mines. Nevertheless, he demonstrated sufficient knowledge of chemistry to gain membership in the Chemical Society in 1896 and the Institute of Chemistry in 1897. He had an exceptional command of languages, including English, Russian, Polish, German, and French. So, don't know where he learnt stuff, but he's good at what he knows. Yeah, he obviously, yeah. He obviously learnt some stuff somewhere, and is quite a smart. Yeah. So, Giles Milton, who has researched his early life, said, Both his parents were Jewish, although they had converted to Catholicism. Rosenbaum fled Odessa in his late teens for reasons that remain obscure. No surprise. No <laughs> less obscure are the next two decades of his life. He would later spin tales about how he had been a cook, a dock worker, a railway engineer in India, and a brothel doorman in Brazil. But there is no certainty that he did any of these jobs. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like, is he like what Pierce Hawthorne did when his dad sent him off to sail around the world? And he just went offshore and, <laughs> and parties and then made up all these stories. Well, that's the thing. There's so much of this guy's life. As you will see throughout this story, there's so much of this guy's life where the stuff that we can prove is batshit crazy. So the stuff that might not be true is no less crazy. Well, okay. <laughs> now, okay. So according to reports of the Tsarist police for political police, the Okrana, Rosenblum was arrested in 1892 for political activities and for being a courier for revolutionary groups known as the Friends of Enlightenment, though he managed to escape punishment. After his release, his father told him that his mother was dead and his biological father was actually her Jewish doctor. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently distraught Why? by this news... He faked his death in Odessa Harbour and stowed away aboard a British ship bound for South America. Arriving in Brazil, he adopted the name Pedro and worked as a dock worker, a, oh, road, come on. <laughs> a road mender, a plantation labourer and a cook for the British Intelligent Expedition in 1895. Yeah, you seem to already be not believing half of what's going on. <laughs> 
no, 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 no. I'm just like, I'm like, could oh, you have the, picked the a more king shade name? <laughs> that was my, that was my, uh, that was right. my, uh, my reaction. Well, I don't know. Is it like, w- would someone from another country coming over here and wants to adopt an English name, would they just go for John? Because it's very English, but it's also, yeah, there's, there's loads of Johns running around. So it'd work. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I expected somebody with obviously a penchant for lying to be a slightly more creative <laughs> as well. I expected more of Giorgio Solomon Rosenblum Pieter <laughs> John Pedro <laughs> yeah I also, I also mentioned the name Sydney earlier which hasn't come up yet but that's what he's known as quite a bit so there's even more names to come <laughs> so he allegedly saved both the expedition uh, the British intelligence expedition I mentioned earlier, and the life of Major Charles Fothergill when hostile natives attacked them. <coughs> Rosenblum seized the British officer's pistol and killed the attackers. Fothergill rewarded his bravery with £1,500, a British passport, and passage to Britain, where Pedro became Sidney Rosenblum. So you're saying he alleged this, so there's no there's no evidence? Yes. Um, the record of evidence contradicts this tale okay because you know i i have there were a few like red flags raised during that telling a few this is like a red flag parade (laughs) it's true evidence indicates that rosenblum arrived in london from france not brazil in december 1895 prompted by his unscrupulous acquisition of a large sum of money and a hasty departure from paris (laughs) According to this account, Rosenblum and his Polish accomplice waylaid two Italian anarchists on Christmas Day and robbed them of a substantial amount of revolutionary funds. One anarchist's throat was cut while the other died from a knife from knife wounds three days later. Crikey. Yeah, and this is actually documented because uh, a French newspaper reported on it um, on the 27th of December and said, A dramatic event occurred on a train on opening the door of one of the coaches, the railway staff discovered an unfortunate passenger lying unconscious in the middle of a pool of blood. His throat had been cut and his body bore the marks of numerous knife wounds. Terrified at the sight, the station staff hastened to inform the special investigator who started preliminary inquiries and sent the wounded man to hospital. Whether or not that was him, no one knows because this guy's like the fucking wind, but that <laughs> event did happen. Police learned that the physical description of one of the assailants matched Rosenblum's, but he was already en route to Britain. His accomplice later told British intelligence officers about this incident and other dealings with Rosenblum. Apparently, several months prior to this murder, Rosenblum had met Ethel Ball, a young Englishwoman who was a budding writer. The couple began a sexual relationship and he told her about his past in Russia. After the affair concluded, they continued to correspond. And in 1897, Ball published The Gadfly, a critically acclaimed novel whose central character was allegedly based on Rosenblum's life. In the novel, the protagonist is a bastard who feigns his suicide to escape his illegitimate past, then voyages to South America. He later returns to Europe and becomes involved with Italian anarchists and other revolutionaries. Sounds remarkably similar. Yeah, I think it's easy to see how that connects. I mean, if he is lying, he could have sued her for copyright infringement. (laughs) I made up that story, you didn't. He arrived in England in early 1896 and began living at the Albert Mansions, an apartment block in Waterloo. 
he created the Ozone's Preparation Company, which peddled patent medicines, and, be, and he became an informant for William Melville, the superintendent of Scotland Yard's special branch. Doesn't surprise me that he peddled patent, mes- patent medicines. <laughs> yeah, this, this guy does seem like the uh, bit of a con man. In 1897, Rosenblum began an affair with Margaret Thomas, the youthful wife of Reverend Hugh Thomas, shortly before her husband's death. Rosenblum met Thomas in London through his ozone preparations company, and Thomas introduced Rosenblum to his wife at his manor house, and they began having an affair. On the 4th of March 1898, Thomas altered his will and appointed Margaret as the executor. He was found dead in his room on the 12th of March, just a week after the new will was made. A mysterious Dr. T.W. Andrew, whose physical description matched that of Rosenblum, <laughs> appeared to certify Thomas's death as generic influenza and proclaimed that there was no need for an inquest. <laughs> Records indicate that there was no one by the name of Dr. T.W. Andrew in Great Britain at the time. God, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you think about, you th- I mean, the temptation is, sorry, I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> Bless you. Thank you. The um the temptation is to call this dude incredibly clever, but he wouldn't last a minute in this day and age. Oh god no. <laughs> I think to get away with this stuff nowadays, you've got to be so much better than they used to be you back be in the so old days. <laughs> yes, there was a weird doctor who who was wearing a blatantly fake moustache. <laughs> Margaret insisted that her husband's body be ready for burial within 36 hours. She inherited roughly £800,000. Nice. Yeah, not bad for a murder, I suppose. The Metropolitan Police did not investigate Dr. T.W. Andrew, nor did they investigate the nurse who Margaret had hired, who had previously been linked to an arsenic poisoning of a former employer. (laughs) It's so obvious. Yeah. <laughs> I just had to, yeah, when I researched that bit, I had to pause as well, because I was just like, oh my god, how? <laughs> Four months later, on the 22nd of August, 1898, Rosenblum and Margaret married. The marriage not only brought the wealth which Rosenblum desired, but provided a pretext to discard his identity of Sigmund Rosenblum. With Melville's assistance, he crafted a new identity, Sidney George Riley. The chief of police of Scotland Yard. Yeah, he's he's helped him forge a new identity. Enabled him to enter witness protection. Um, I'm not sure if it's so much witness protection, but kind. Well, yeah, yeah. criminal. He's like, here's your new identity because why do you need a new? (laughs) Well, he's got to keep his informants happy. Will be like, why do you need a new identity? Have you committed a crime or anything? No, no, I just fancied a change. Just because he's asked for a new identity after he married this rich widow whose husband died mysteriously Mysteriously and it was all deemed okay by a doctor who looks exactly like him doesn't mean he needs a new identity for any dodgy reasons. No, no, no. I mean, who are we to say? We're not police officers. He, you know. I don't think Melville was either. We're obviously, you know, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. We think that we're cleverer, but he's a policeman and we should just (laughs) realise that he was obviously right. In June 1899, Sydney and Margaret travelled to the Russian Empire using Sydney's forged British passport, a travel document and cover identity both purportedly created by William Melville. Whilst in St. Petersburg, he was approached by Japanese General Akashi Motojiro to work for the Japanese Secret Intelligence Service. 
Mutajiro. <laughs> no, th- some of these things, there are documents. There are documents. Okay. <laughs> Mutajiro believed the most reliable spies were those who were motivated by profit instead of feelings of sympathy towards Japan. And he believes Sydney to be such a person. I think he was probably not wrong in that. Yeah. <laughs> but then the issue with profit motivated people is you can always be priced out of the market by your competitors. Yep. And if Sydney is the type of person to spy on Japan for money, I think he's also the type of person to go straight back to Britain and go, Japan are paying me to spy on them. If you pay me more, I'll give them false information. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't see that happening at all in this story. <laughs> oh, sorry. Have I just have I just besmirched his honour? No, I don't think he's earned any honour yet so far. <laughs> <laughs> As tensions between Russia and Japan were escalating towards war, Mutajiro had at his disposal a budget of 1 million yen to obtain information on Russian troops and naval deployments. Mutajiro instructed Sydney to offer financial aid to Russian revolutionaries in exchange for information about the Russian intelligence service and to determine the strength of Russian armed forces. Accepting the offer, Sydney became an agent for both the British War Office and the Japanese Empire. <laughs> Sydney allegedly reconnoitred the Caucasus for its oil deposits and compiled a resource prospectus, which he reported to the British government. Shortly before the Russo-Japanese War, Sydney appeared in Port Arthur in Manchuria in the guise of a timber company owner. He remained there for four years, familiarising himself with political conditions in the Far East and obtaining a degree of personal influence in the ongoing espionage activities in the region. At the time, he was still a double agent for the British and Japanese governments. By purchasing and reselling enormous amounts of foodstuffs, raw materials, medicine and coal, Sydney made a small fortune as a war profiteer. Oh, so he wasn't sort of gaining... Sorry. So he wasn't gaining influence in order to then sell that information. Oh, no, he's... he's Oh, he's doing he that a little bit, but he's also lining his own pockets. He's yeah, yeah. He's he's working the he's system. Just, he's just doing bad things on all fronts, basically. Oh God, yes. <laughs> yeah. Sydney cares about one person. Sydney. Do you think that's what he calls himself in the mirror? <laughs> he could call himself God knows anything at this point. He's got so many names, mm-hmm. and we don't even know which his real one is. <laughs> In January 1904, he and a Chinese engineer acquaintance, Ho Liang Shung, allegedly stole the Port Arthur Harbour defence plans for the Japanese Navy. Guided by these stolen plans, the Japanese Navy navigated by night through the Russian minefield protecting the harbour and launched a surprise attack on Port Arthur. Quite a, quite a big bit of, big bit of uh, intelligence. Yeah, he, he might be a shit, but he's pretty good at his job. Mm. Well, kind of, because Sydney quickly became a target of suspicion by Russian authorities at Port Arthur. He discovered that one of his business subordinates was an agent of Russian counter-espionage and chose oh, to leave no. the region. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna, just gonna, I'm just gonna go to the loo and I'm gonna take my suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> he travelled to Imperial Japan, where he was handsomely paid by the Japanese government for his intelligence services. I should hope so. In February 1905, he appeared in Paris. He was described as having become a self-confident international adventurer who was fluent in several languages and whose intelligence services were highly desired by various great powers. During his stay in Paris, he renewed his friendship with William Melville, who had resigned... 
sorry, I was just going to make. I was just going to say that it's quite surprising that you managed to find his um, his dating profile headline. <laughs> wow, people like to talk about him. He was a mm. suave and well sought man. Apparently, so. highly desired. So yes, he renewed his friendship with Melville, who had resigned as superintendent of Scotland Yard's special branch and had become chief of a new intelligence section in the War Office. Working under commercial cover from an unassuming flat in London, Melville now ran both the counterintelligence and foreign intelligence operations. Oh, what? Sorry, sorry. It took my brain a bit of a bit of time to go. Yeah, dodgy Melville is now basically running Britain's spies. Yeah, and trying to find out foreign spies. Yep. So a year earlier, in 1904, the board of the Admiralty projected that petroleum would supplant coal as the primary source of fuel for the Royal Navy. During their investigation, the British Admiralty learned that an Australian mining engineer, William Knox Darcy, had obtained valuable oil rights in southern Persia. The Admiralty initiated efforts to entice Darcy to sell his newly acquired oil rights to the British government rather than to the French Rothschilds. Riley at the British Admiralty's request, located Darcy at Cannes in south of France and approached him in disguise. I love his disguise. Dressed as a Catholic priest, Sidney gatecrashed the private discussion on board the Rothschild's yacht on the pretext of collecting donations for a religious charity. (laughs) See, if you put this in a movie, they'd tell you it's too ridiculous. (laughs) Well, I was going to ask before you started, why did he disguise himself? Nobody knows, like, the person who he's wanting to con doesn't know what he looks like, but, oh no, it's not just a disguise, it's a plan and a disguise. Yeah, it's his way in. (laughs) Sidney then secretly informed Darcy that the British could give him a better financial deal. Darcy promptly terminated negotiations with the Rothschild and returned to London to meet with the British Admiralty. So hang on a minute. Right, I'm I'm so picturing this. Um <laughs> like, you know, those those conman TV shows where he's he's got the dog collar on and he's like, No, my son, I must go through this door and just like, you know, completely hustling his way through to like <laughs> the chamber and then getting there and then just like taking his collar off and throwing it down and going, Darcy, I'm from England. We can offer you a better deal. Come with me now. And then they both just run away. Is that how it went down? Nothing in record says it didn't go down exactly like that. Okay, that's, that's good enough for me. In 1909, Sydney attended the first Frankfurt International Air Show to attain a newly developed German Magneto. What? You're questioning that he's been sent or? No, I didn't know that Magneto was German. He's not, he doesn't have an accent in the movies. Oh, I, I should have seen that one coming. You really should have. I'm surprised Especially you as when I first read it, I went, Magneto? <laughs> <laughs> He does come from Germany. He does, actually, doesn't he? Yeah, he's a German Jew. Well, I wonder if that's where it comes from, then. What is is a magneto? A magneto is an electrical generator that uses permanent magnets to produce periodic pulses of alternating current. Okay, and what's the purpose of such a thing? To produce electricity and power. It's kind of like a dynamo. Oh, okay. But obviously it's not powerful enough to actually do anything useful. Honest, I'm going to be honest, I didn't really research into magnetos before this. Well, I'm assuming it's not. Otherwise, otherwise, why would we be digging up dinosaurs to run our power station, you know, to run our power stations if we could just use magnets? It might have been one of those things they started exploring it at the start of the century is this could be a way forward and then it didn't pan out. You know, it kind of works, but not on the levels that we need, maybe. So on the fifth day of the air show, 
A German plane lost control and crashed, killing the pilot. The plane's engine was alleged to have used a new type of magneto that was far ahead of other designs. Sydney and a British secret intelligence service agent posing as one of the exhibition's pilots diverted the attention of spectators whilst they removed the magneto from the wreck and substituted another. The secret intelligence service agent quickly made detailed drawings of the German magneto and when the airplane had been removed to a hangar, the agent and Sydney managed to restore the original. What? Basically, they needed to look at this bit in the engine. So when this plane crashed, which they may or may not have caused, I couldn't see if that well, was the case. Well, that's, that's, that's where I was saying, what about? I understood, like, we need to look at this engine. But, like, if you didn't cause to crash, how else were you going to look at an engine? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it sounds like they killed this guy just to look get a look at the engine. Yeah. And then I like the way the other guy was like, I'm just going to dress as a pilot and go, hey, look at me. Well, Sydney just nabs it. Yeah. Yeah. Again, sterling plans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not as James Bond as you think, is it? No one's like taking over the intelligence service from within or using special gadgets. They're literally putting on a fake priest outfit and going, hey, look over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're basically just cutting the cutting the brake lines on, a, on an aeroplane. In 1909, when the German Kaiser was expanding the war machine in Imperial Germany, British intelligence sent Sydney to obtain the plans for the weapons. Sydney arrived in Essen, disguised as a Baltic shipyard worker by the name of Karl Hahn. Having prepared his cover identity by learning to weld Sheffield Engineering Firm, he obtained a low-level position as a welder at Krupp Gun Work Plant. At least he actually put a bit of a bit into his cover this time. Yeah, yeah. The, I like the fact that he actually went and learned to weld. It's like yeah. he couldn't fake it this time. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think I think even he realised that perhaps, you know, if he's going to take a job as a welder, he needs to know how to weld. Yeah. He joined the plant's fire brigade and persuaded its foreman that a set of plant schematics were needed to indicate the positions of fire extinguishers and hydrants. These schematics were soon logged into the fireman's office for members of the fire brigade to consult, and Sydney set about using them to locate the weapon plans. That's quite clever. Yeah. It's, it's sneaky. I like it. In the early morning hours... Sydney picked the lock to the office where the plans were kept and was discovered by the foreman who he strangled before completing the theft. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, Sydney, don't fuck around. <laughs> no. He took a train to a safe house in Dortmund and tore the plans into four pieces, which he mailed separately so that if one were lost, the other three would still reveal the existence of the weapons. Yeah, so he, he stole weapon plans. <laughs> yeah. And is that, again, I'm assuming that, that we have evidence for this. Yes. Yeah. Most of these things now, um, there is evidence. Wow. There's, there's some claims that are like up in the air. It's like, mm, but most of these, there's some sort of record because he's mm. actually doing it for the British government now. For the government, yeah. Yeah. Most, pretty much from what I saw, all the stuff where he's doing it for the British government, proven. The other stuff is a bit, uh, maybe, probably, but maybe a little bit not. In April 1912, Sydney returned to St. Peterburg. St. Peterburg? No, St. Petersburg. <laughs> <laughs> the, the simple Russian one I fucked up on. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> uh, so he returned to St. Petersburg, where he assumed the role of a wealthy businessman and helped form the Wings Aviation Club. During his time there, he was described as having a lavish apartment in St. Petersburg, a splendid art collection, and was a member of the most exclusive club in the city. He assumed a friendship with Alexander Gramatikov, who was an Okrana agent. Do you know who the Okrana are? 
No. Uh, Russian secret police, basically like a precursor to KGB and stuff like that. Okay. Um, he made friends with him because he was a fellow member of the aviation club. And that's the only reason. Well, I'm sure they were able to make friends other ways, but that was his in. Oh, no, sorry. It's, it's all right. I thought that you were like saying like, yeah, no, he just became friends with him for no ulterior motives. Oh, oh no, there's definitely ulterior motives. Yeah. <laughs> Sydney was tasked with befriending and profiling Sir Basil Zaharoff, the international armed salesman and representative of Vickers Armstrong Munitions. During this assignment, Sydney learned Le System from Zaharoff. The strategy of playing all sides against each other to maximise financial profit. Which, let's be honest, he was kind of doing it before working yeah. two spy groups at the same time. But Yeah, and, and now he's oh, international arms dealers. Yeah. <laughs> Sydney Bad. also became known as something of a womaniser during this period, wherever in the world he was. Author Giles Milton said that all accounts agree that he had a seductive charm, loving women as he loved himself. <laughs> a string of mistresses would fall under his spell. Monogamy did not come naturally to Riley, and although he was usually fastidious in his choice of women, it did not prevent him from cavorting around London on one of his visits with a common tart named Plugger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, common tart named Plugger. Brilliant. Between 1915 and 1918, Sydney, while engaged in the munitions business in New York, was covertly employed by British intelligence, and it is believed by some biographers that he may have participated in several acts of so-called German sabotage, deliberately calculated to provoke the United States to enter the war against the Central Powers. Interesting. Yeah, bit conspiracy theory-ish, but interesting. Yeah. During this time, he engaged in arranging munition sales to the Imperial German Army and its enemy, the Imperial Russian Army. However, when the United States entered the war in April 1917, Sydney's business became less profitable since his company was now prohibited from selling ammunition to the Germans. Well, that sort of, uh, does that not put pay to the uh, theory that he was trying to get America into the war? Because that would have, he must have known that that would have affected his profit margin. Yeah, yeah, I suppose, unless he was just expecting to be able to keep selling to both sides. But no, I think he'd be probably smarter than that, yeah. Yeah. Faced with the unexpected financial hardship, he sought to resume his paid intelligence work for the British government whilst in New York. He approached Norman Thwaites, the MI1 head of station in New York. I looked at this because I'd not heard of MI1 before. It sounds, from what I saw, it's what would eventually become MI6. Yeah, I think I think they started with different different numbers for different countries, and then they just went to like Britain and overseas. So they just kept five and six. Yeah, because I'd not heard of MI1 before. It was a bit taken aback by that when I saw that pop up. Thwaites, who was formerly a private secretary to newspaper magnate Joseph Pulitzer and a police reporter for Pulitzer's News of the World, Thwaites was keen on obtaining information concerning radical activities in the United States. I'm not sure if you remember, that's the same editor and newspaper that Nellie Bly worked for. Yes, I did remember. Yeah, which I wasn't aware of that connection before I started this, but I like it when our stories intermingle. <laughs> that's what you call a callback. Yeah, 
Yeah. And if people don't know what we're talking about, go listen to that episode. Under Thwaites' direction, Sydney worked alongside other British intelligence operatives. Although their mission was to coordinate with the US government in regards to intelligence about the German Empire and Soviet Russia, the British agents also focused upon obtaining trade secrets and other commercial information related to American industrial companies for their British rivals. So even when your allies in war, we're going to think about money. Of course. Thwaites was so impressed with Sidney's work that he wrote a letter of recommendation to Mansfield Cumming, the head of MI1. It was also Thwaites who recommended that Sydney visit Toronto to obtain a military commission. Because you couldn't join MI1 if you weren't military. Oh, yeah. Uh, so on the 19th of October in 1917, Sydney joined the Royal Canadian Flying Corps. After receiving a commission to Lieutenant, he voyaged to London, where Cumming formally swore Lieutenant Riley into service as a staff caseholder in His Majesty's Secret Intelligence Service. So now he's officially on the books. He is a member of MI1. In January 1918, Robert Bruce Lockhart, a junior member of the British Foreign Office, was personally handpicked by British Prime Minister David Lloyd George to undertake a sensitive diplomatic mission to Soviet Russia. Lockhart's assigned objectives were to liaise with Soviet authorities, to subvert Soviet-German relations, and to bolster Soviet resistance to German peace overtures, and to push Soviet authorities into recreating the Eastern Theatre. By April, however, Lockhart had hopelessly failed to achieve any of his objectives. Concurrently, he ordered Sidney Riley to pursue contacts with anti-Bolshevik circles in order to sow the seeds for an armed uprising in Moscow. I was going to say, I mean, it's not really, I mean, not exactly a very difficult, it's not exactly a very easy thing to accomplish. Vague aims where just this is what we want at the end, but not going to help you go about it. Well, no, also, but wasn't one of them like restarting the war on the Eastern Front? Yeah. Yeah, so that's like I've got to ingratiate myself to the highest levels of military power in Russia and then persuade them that my idea is better. <laughs> a fairly difficult task. I just don't think you're trying hard enough, Em. Well, I'm not trying at all, to be fair. <laughs> well, there's your problem. Yeah, probably. In May 1918, Lockhart, Sydney, and various agents of the Allied powers repeatedly met with Boris Savinikov, head of the counter-revolutionary Union for the Defence of the Motherland and Freedom, the UDMF. Savinkov had been deputy war minister in the provisional government and a key opponent of the Bolsheviks. A former Socialist Revolutionary Party member, he had formed the UDMF consisting of several thousand Russian fighters and he was receptive to Allied overtures to depose the Soviet government. Lockhart, Sydney, and others then contacted anti-Bolshevik groups linked to Savinkov and Socialist Revolutionary Party cells. They supported these factions with MI1 funds. They also liaised with Consul Generals of the United States and France, and coordinated their activities with intelligence operatives affiliated with the French and US consuls in Moscow. Ah, uh, well, it's nice to know that, you know, that Western powers interventionists like sly secret interventionist tactics started so long ago <laughs> yeah I, people are just always out to fuck each other over in june disillusioned elements of colonel berzin's latvian rifle division began appearing in anti-bolshevik circles in petrograd and were eventually directed to a british naval attache captain francis cromie and his assistant 
Mr. Constantine, a Turkish merchant who was actually Sydney in disguise. Because he loves a good, good disguise. He loves a good disguise. In contrast to his previous espionage operations, which had been independent of other agents, Sydney worked closely while in Petrograd with Krumi in joint efforts to recruit Berzins, Latvians, and to equip anti-Bolshevik armed forces. At the time, Krumi purportedly represented the British Naval Intelligence Division and oversaw its operations in northern Russia. Kromi operated in loose coordination with the ineffectual commander Ernest Boyce, the MI1 station chief in Petrograd. As Berzin's Latvians were deemed the Praetorian Guard of the Bolsheviks and entrusted with the security of both Lenin and the Kremlin, the Allied plotters believed that their participation in the pending coup would be vital. Yeah, they're not wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, if you guard Lenin, it's like, yeah, you're pretty key. Yeah, it's basically like, if we get these people on our side, we're pretty much that. Yeah. If we don't, it'll be quite hard. <laughs> That's the um, funny thing about, um, like, you know, those outright people that actually do want an armed uprising. They are fully of the impression that if they got an uprising, that 100,000 people in the military and the police would join them. <laughs> Okay. Mm. Can't see that happening. Yeah. Well, well, you know, 100,000 people is only 0.3 of the American population. So That's all you need, yeah. I think. <laughs> it's not a big country to take over. No. And of course, all the military are on your side and will be prepared to overthrow the government. <laughs> Seems totally legit. With the aid of the Latvian riflemen, the Allied agents hoped to seize both Lenin and Trotsky. Sidney arranged a meeting between Lockhart and the Latvians at the British mission in Moscow. He reportedly expended over a million rubles to bribe the Red Army troops guarding the Kremlin. At this stage, Cromie, Sidney, Lockhart and other Allied agents allegedly planned a full-scale coup against the Bolshevik government and drew up a list of Soviet military leaders ready to assume responsibilities on its demise. Their objective was to capture or kill Lenin and Trotsky, to establish a provisional government, and to extinguish Bolshevism. Bolshevism. Oh, I can't even say it. <laughs> Bolshevism. There we go. It was, it was the fact that you mispronounced it the same way both times. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You knew what I was saying. I know. Trust me, there's there's many more times that I could uh, like pick you up on your pronunciation, but I don't. Yeah, I'm trying my best. I know. That's why I don't. Because, <laughs> you know, once or twice is cool. Medical terms is cool, but if I do it more than that, it just seems like bullying. <laughs> yeah. As long as I mispronounce the, the names the same way every time, you can follow who's who. As Lockhart's diplomatic status hindered his open engagement in clandestine... Yeah, I, I paused after that because I was like, <laughs> did I say that wrong? <laughs> Even in my head, I was like, that wasn't right. <laughs> Oh. oh, I, you know, I was planning on correcting you on the first word you got wrong. I just didn't realise it'd be right out the gate. <laughs> oh, let's start that one again. <laughs> I'll leave that in though because you seem to enjoy yourself there. <laughs> oh, wow! <laughs> look, you know the rules. the The guests can look stupid. I try not to. Yeah. The power of being the one who edits. Indeed. Let's try that one again. As Lockhart's diplomatic status hindered his open engagement in clandestine activities, he chose to supervise activities from afar and delegate the actual direction of the coup to Sydney. I mean, 
you hear people talk about like the deep state and the shadow government mm. but then you hear that like in 1920 like two random dudes were basically responsible for planning the takeover of russia and they were drawing up the list of who was going to take over yeah wow it's pretty crazy yeah i wonder if people knew that sydney was originally born in russia i think they did the he sounds like he was quite open about that he was from Russia because of inspiring that book before. Okay. So they probably picked him because of that, because he knows the country. He can probably speak the language very well, put on a very convincing accent if he hasn't already lost his original one. So I dare say it's yeah. it's part of why he was put on the mission. But you'd think that, that there might be a, a, a sort of like, we should probably keep an eye on him just in case he's <laughs> playing both sides. From the sounds of him, you just need to make sure that you keep an eye on him so he doesn't go and meet some woman called Plugger. <laughs> I think he's more likely to go off womanizing than go off mission. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you were saying about trusting him because <laughs> the next part of this paragraph. Um, Throughout their backroom intrigues in Moscow, Lockhart never openly questioned Sidney's loyalty to the Allies, although he privately wondered if he had made a secret bargain with Colonel Brezin and his Latvian riflemen to later seize power for themselves. So yeah, he he is questioning whether he should keep an eye on him or not. Well, there you go. Yeah, you're reading ahead. <laughs> Unknown to the Allied conspirators, however, Berzin was, quote, an honest commander and devoted to the Soviet government. He informed Felix... <gasps> well... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. My cat just came in from the cold and put his cold feet on my tummy. Oh, horrible. <laughs> Could you move your chilly feet, please? Thank you. Sorry. Yeah, I'm I'm not good at pronunciations, but this next one, I've got no hope in hell. Um, so Berzin informed Felix Dzerhinsky. Dzerhinsky? I think I'm, I'm going to send this to you in Skype. It's insane. I'm not particularly great on the... There's like two Zs in there. <laughs> D-Z-E-R-Z-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Dzerhinsky. 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 Dzerhinsky, yeah. Okay. We'll go with that one. So he informed the secret police, the Cheka, that he had been approached by the Allied agents in an attempt to recruit him into a possible coup. The Cheka had gained access to British diplomatic codes in months earlier and were closely monitoring the anti-Bolshevik activities, fully aware of the plot. Berzin and other Latvian officers were ordered to pretend to be receptive to the plotters and to meticulously report every detail of the pending operation. <laughs> On the 4th of August... 1918, an Allied force landed at oh, <laughs> place in Russia. Ar Arkhangelsk. Landed at Arkhangelsk, oh, Russia. Um, yeah, it's that place. Um, it looks like Archangel. Yeah, because it's Operation Archangel. Yes. I don't know. I don't know how it's pronounced. I just know that Thomas Harris wrote a book. It's 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 the birthplace of somebody. I think I can't remember. Yeah, well, the the expedition that landed there was actually named Operation Archangel. Mm. Um, I just don't know how the Russian version of that is pronounced. <laughs> so the objective of the operation was to prevent the German Empire from attaining Allied military supplies stored in the region. In retaliation for this incursion, the Bolsheviks raided the British diplomatic mission on the 5th of August, disrupting a meeting Sydney had arranged between anti-Bolshevik Latvians, UDMF officials and Lockhart. Unperturbed by these raids, Sydney conducted meetings on the 17th of August between Latvian regimental leaders and liaised with Captain George Alexander Hill, a multilingual British agent operating in Russia on behalf of the Ministry Intelligence Directorate. 
They arranged the coup would occur in the first week of September during a meeting of the Council of People's Commissars and the Moscow Soviet at the Bolshoi Theatre. You got that one right. I know. That's why I took my time. (laughs) (laughs) The Allied conspirators had organised a broad network of agents and saboteurs throughout Soviet Russia, whose overarching ambition was was to disrupt the nation's food supplies. Coupled with the planned military uprising in Moscow, they believed a chronic food shortage would trigger popular unrest and further undermined Soviet authorities. Not a bad plan. On the 30th of August, a military cadet named Leonid Kanegisa was ordered to shoot and kill Yuritsky, head of the Petrograd Cheka. Yuritsky had been the second most powerful man in the city, and his murder was seen as a blow to both the Cheka and the entire Bolshevik leadership. Kanegisa tried to leave the city, but was apprehended by Red Guards after a violent shootout. On the same day, Fania Kaplan shot and wounded Lenin as he departed the Mikkelsen Arms Factory in Moscow. As Lenin exited the building and before he entered his motor car, Kaplan called out to him. When he turned towards her, she fired three shots at him with a pistol. One bullet narrowly missed his heart and penetrated his lung, while another bullet lodged in his neck near his jugular. Bloody women. Yeah, I know. Kind of getting an assassination right. <laughs> The attack was widely covered in Russian press, generating great deal of sympathy for Lenin and boosting his popularity. <laughs> damn, damn. Yep. As a consequence of this That's assassination, the of backfire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As a consequence of this assassination attempt, however, the meetings between Lenin and Trotsky, where the bribed soldiers would seize them on behalf of the Allies, was postponed. Because um, Kaplan was not actually part of the plot; she just decided to try and shoot Lenin. At the wrong time. Oh, we're, oh shit. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she had nothing to do with it. So if she hadn't have tried to shoot him then, this could have gone very, very differently. <laughs> yeah. The murder of Yuritsky and the failed assassination of Lenin were used by the Cheka to implicate any malcontents and foreigners in a grand conspiracy that warranted a full-scale campaign named the Red Terror. Thousands of political opponents were seized and mass executions took place across the city. I know I'm not trying to make light of this terrible Mm. event, but the fact that the Russians themselves called one of their actions the the Red Terror, and yet the best the Americans could do was call it the Red Scare. (laughs) Yeah, they were operating on very different levels there. Yeah. Using lists supplied by undercover agents, the Cheka proceeded to clear out the, quote, nests of conspirators in foreign embassies, and in doing so, they arrested key figures vital to the impending coup. On the 31st of August, a Cheka detachment raided the British consulate in Petrograd and killed Chromie. However, he put up armed resistance. According to press reports, he made a last stand on the first floor of the consulate, armed only with a revolver. He killed three soldiers before he was in turn killed and his corpse mutilated. The Cheka detachment then arrested over 40 people who had sought refuge in the British consulate, as well as seized weapon caches and compromising documents, which they claimed implicated the staff in the forthcoming coup. Chromie's death was publicly depicted as a measure of self-defence by the Bolsheviks, who had been forced to return his fire. Meanwhile, Lockhart was arrested by the Cheka and transported under guard to Lubyanka prison. When questioned about the coup, he and other British nationals dismissed the idea as nonsense. 
Afterwards, he was placed in the same holding cell as Franja Kaplan, whom their watchful jailers hoped might betray some sign of recognising him and other British agents. However, because she wasn't involved in it at all, she showed no signs of recognising him or anyone else. So when it became clear that she, she would not implicate any accomplices, she was executed in the Kremlin's Alexander Garden on the 3rd of September 1918 with a bullet to the back of the head. Her corpse was bundled into a rusted iron barrel and set alight. Wow. Lockhart was later released and deported, so he got off so lucky. <laughs> Newspapers in Russia put credit for the coup on Sydney. He was hunted throughout days and nights as he had never been hunted before, according to one report, and his photograph with a full description and a reward was placarded throughout the area. The Cheka raided his assumed refuge, but Sydney avoided capture and met with Captain Hill whilst in hiding. Hill later wrote that Sydney, despite narrowly escaping his pursuers in both Moscow and Petrograd, was, quote, absolutely cool, calm and collected, not in the least downhearted, and only concerned in gathering together the broken threads and starting afresh. Yeah, but is that because he is a badass, or is that because he's like, if I get arrested, I'll just turn on the Brits? <laughs> I'm sure he's got plans in the works to turn on anyone whenever the whenever he needs to. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this is a dude who this is a dude who excels at self preservation. Oh yeah. <laughs> Hill proposed that Sydney leave Russia via the Ukraine using their network of British agents for safe houses and assistance. However, Sydney chose a shorter and more dangerous route north through Petrograd and the Baltic provinces to Finland in order to get their reports to London as early as possible. With the Cheka closing in, Sydney, carrying a Baltic German passport supplied by Hill, departed the region in a railway car reserved for the German embassy. He arrived unscathed in London on the 8th of November. He's a lucky bastard. He is. I don't think that was skill. I think that one was probably just luck. <laughs> While safely in England, Sydney, Lockhart and other agents were tried in absentia before the Supreme Revolutionary Tribunal in Russia in a proceeding which began on the 25th of November. Approximately 20 defendants faced charges in the trial. The case was concluded on the 3rd of December 1918, with two defendants sentenced to be shot and various others sentenced to terms from, of prison or forced labour for terms up to five years. Both Sydney and Lockhart had been sentenced to death by the Revolutionary Tribunal for their roles in the attempted coup, and the sentence was to be carried out immediately should either of them be apprehended on Soviet soil. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a prediction. Mm. I'm going to predict that he's going to go back to Russia at some point. And I don't think he's going to die that way. No? That's my prediction. Okay. Well, like you said, he is the master of self-preservation. Well, yeah, that's my... I'm, be I'm, I'm gambling on you, Sydney. <laughs> Within a week of their return debriefing, the British Secret Intelligence Service and the Foreign Office again sent Sydney and Hill to southern Russia under the cover <laughs> of British trade delegates. <sighs> oh, okay. I wasn't expecting, I wasn't expecting, like, the British government to just go, yeah, no, it's fine, go back. Yeah, it's like, and it's a week later. They didn't, they yeah. didn't wait for it to cool down. It's like, ah, oh, you'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, Russia, Russia's like, I mean, it is a fairly big country, but still. I, I know spreading information is not as good back then, and it's harder to keep track of things and identify people, but that's still a hell of a risk. I mean, also, having said that, you know, we don't actually know how good Sydney's disguises were. Yeah, he could have, like, had numerous 
stick on mustaches and indeed you know? you know maybe maybe he had more costumes than the priest as well he could have been a rabbi school teacher school teacher doctor. yeah yeah get, get a stethoscope on you you're a doctor it's easy yeah. that one um clown no one ever suspects the clown <laughs> which they should because the clowns are always clown. up to something i just got an image of him sneaking through the russian border now as a clown but then, like, wanting to sneak through the Russian border as a clown, but forgetting that he packed the pair of shoes with the squeakers in them. <laughs> yeah, he was squeaking in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Traipsing through the snow. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> uh, have you heard of the, um, oh, what's his name? The German comedian, Henning Venn. Yes. Have you ever watched him on Would I Lie to You? No. No, I've not seen him on that. He tells a story about um, getting captured by, I think it was Polish border guards, for accidentally wandering into Poland. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a German accidentally wandering into Poland. Sydney mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> and Hill's assignment was to uncover information about the Black Sea coast needed for the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. They travelled in the guise of British merchants with appropriate credentials provided by the Department of Overseas Trade. Over the next six weeks or so, Sydney prepared 12 dispatches which reported on various aspects of the situation in South Russia and were delivered personally by Hill to the Foreign Office in London. Sydney identified four principal factors in the affairs of South Russia at the time. The Volunteer Army, the territorial or provincial governments in the Kuban, Don and Crimea, Sydney advised Allied assistance to organise South Russia for decisive action against Bolshevism. Urgent as the need for Allied military assistance to the Volunteer Army was in Sydney's estimation, he regarded economic assistance for South Russia as even more pressing. Manufactured goods were so scarce that he considered any moderate contribution from the Allies would have a most beneficial effect. Four days before the British general election, on the 8th of October 1924, a Tory newspaper printed a letter purporting to originate from Grigory Zinovivev, head of the Third Communist International. The letter claimed the planned resumption of diplomatic and trade relations by the Labour Party with Soviet Russia would indirectly hasten or overthrow the British government. Hours later, the British Foreign Office incorporated this letter in a stiff note of protest to the Soviet government. <laughs> I say, old cap. Do you realise that one of your citizens is threatening to overthrow our government? I'm much vexed. Yours sincerely, British government. Soviet Russia and British communists denounced the letter as a forgery by British intelligence agents. While, conser- <laughs> <laughs> while conservative politicians and newspapers maintained the document was genuine. Oh my god, this is so like the 1920s version of a Twitter fight right now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Amid the uproar, Ramsay MacDonald's Labour government lost the 1924 general election. According to a 1926 article by Samuel Williamson of the New York Times, Sydney served as a courier to transport the forged letters into the United Kingdom. Some commentators have suggested that Sydney's role in quotes, the famous Zonoviev letter assumed a worldwide political importance for its publication in the British press brought about the fall of the Ramsay MacDonald ministry, frustrated the realisation of the opposed Anglo-Russian commercial treaty, and as a final result led to the signing of treaties of Locarno 
in virtue of which the other states of Europe presented, under the leadership of Britain, a united front against Soviet Russia. So if I've understood that right, basically they're saying this letter changed the course of relations between the whole of Europe and Russia. Yeah, and am I, am I right? Am I right in, in saying that it benefited Russia? Uh, no, because there was going to be trade between Britain and Russia before, but if the Labour Party got in, according to the letter, so this kind of, it, it, if I'm understanding it correct, bolstered anti-Russian sentiment. Oh, okay. So it, it kind of separated Russia from Europe. And uh, Sydney played some part in that, which isn't surprising. He's done everything else. Mm-hmm. According to Sydney's wife, he was determined to return to Russia to see if he could not find some of his friends who he believed to still be alive. He did this in 1925 and never came back. Huh. That's her quote. So in September 1925 in Paris, Sydney met with a number of British and Russian military and espionage personnel. This assembly discussed how they could make contact with a supposedly pro-monarchist and anti-Bolshevik organisation known as the trust in Moscow. The assembly agreed that Sydney should journey to Finland to explore the feasibility of yet another uprising in Russia using the trust apparatus. However, in actuality, the trust was an elaborate counter-espionage deception created by the OGPU, the intelligence successor to the Cheka. Undercover agents of the OGPU lured Sydney into Bolshevik Russia to meet with a supposed anti-communist revolutionaries. At the Soviet-Finnish border, he was introduced to undercover OGPU agents posing as a senior trust representative from Moscow. One of these undercover Soviet agents later recalled the meeting. The first impression of Sidney Riley is unpleasant. His dark eyes express something biting and cruel. His lower lip drooped deeply and was too slick. The neat black hair, the demonstratively elegant suit, everything in his manner expressed something haughtily indifferent to his surroundings. Sydney was brought across the border by Tiovo Vaha, a former Finnish Red Guard fighter who now served the OGPU. Vaha took Riley over the Sestra River to the Soviet side and handed him to OGPU officers. Uh, do you know what, though? If you're, if you're Sydney, I wonder at which point he twigged that he was fucked. Yeah, this is... Uh, <laughs> yeah, because there is one moment where it all comes crashing down for him and it's got to be fucking terrifying. Yeah, where, like, did he suspect the Finn or was it at that moment when he turns and he realises what's happened and the mm. person he trusted has betrayed him and this is the end of his life? After Sydney crossed the Finnish border, the Soviets captured, transported and interrogated him at Lubyanka prison. On arrival, he was taken to the offices of Roman Pilar, a Soviet official who the previous year had arrested and ordered the execution of Boris Savinikov, a close friend of Sydney. Pilar reminded Sydney that he had been sentenced to death by the 1918 tribunal for his participation in counter-revolutionary plots. While Sydney was being interrogated, the Soviets publicly claimed that he had been shot trying to cross the Finnish border. Oh, shit. Yeah, so now he's assumed dead. While facing daily interrogation, Sydney kept a diary in his cell of tiny handwritten notes on cigarette papers, which he hid in the plasterwork of his cell wall. While his Soviet captors were interrogating him, he in turn was analysing and documenting their techniques. 
The diary was a detailed record of OGPU interrogation techniques, and he was confident that such unique documentation would, if he escaped, be of interest to the British SIS. Soviet guards eventually found this diary in his cell wall. Sidney was executed in a forest near Moscow on Thursday the 5th of November 1925. Eyewitness Boris Kudz claimed the execution was supervised by an OGPU officer, while another fired the shot into Riley's chest. Goods also confirmed that the order to kill him came directly from Joseph Stalin. After his death, there were various rumours about his survival. His wife claimed to possess evidence indicating that he was still alive as late as 1932, whilst others speculated that he had defected to the opposition and became an advisor to Soviet intelligence. Despite these rumours, newspapers called him the greatest spy in history and the Scarlet Pimpernel of Red Russia. <laughs> Due to the nature of Sydney's life, there are numerous unconfirmed claims about his career in espionage. It has been claimed that during the Boer War, he masqueraded as a Russian arms merchant to spy on Dutch weapons shipments, that he seduced the wife of a Russian minister to glean information about German weapons shipments to Russia, and that he even attempted to overthrow the Russian Bolshevik government and to rescue the imprisoned Romanov family. Some historians felt, feel much of his career is still considered classified and that we may never know everything about him, whilst others believe that many of the events we do know about have been heavily embellished. Sidney's friend, former diplomat and journalist Sir Robert Lockhart, was a close acquaintance of Ian Fleming, and for many years recounted Sidney's espionage adventures. It is believed that Sidney Riley is one of the main inspirations for the fictional spy, James Bond. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Like Fleming's fictional creation, Sidney was multilingual, fascinated by the Far East, fond of fine living, a compulsive gambler, and a hit with the ladies. Whether or not he did help to inspire the world's most famous spy, he is considered by many to be a dominating figure in the mythology of modern espionage. So yeah, there's, I... there's Sidney Riley for you. <laughs> I think I think he flipped. You think he's he worked for the Russians? Yeah. I certainly believe that he would try. His self-preservation was such that he was sent in to steal some plans, mm -hmm. had two seconds to act when he was caught, and he killed the person. Yeah. He didn't have a weapon. He strangled them with his bare hands. That is somebody who has a self-preservation instinct. Oh, yeah. He'll do anything to stay alive. Yeah. And why would the Soviets put the story out that he had been executed immediately when trying to cross into into Russia. And then they obviously kept him around for at least a while because he kept that diary. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that he, as soon as he got in that situation, was thinking of a way out, which would be, well, I'll join them. But I don't know if they'd have taken that deal or if they'd have just killed him. But I fully believe yeah. he'd have tried it. You know, this is this is Sydney. He's of course, he's going to betray everyone to try and stay alive. <laughs> But the fact that, so you've got like, so he's captured. The Soviet Union put out a story saying that he's dead already when he's not. Time passes. He writes that diary. And then the story is that Stalin ordered his execution. Mm -hmm. Somebody is lying somewhere. I don't know. I, I can't tell you. I, I wish well, I had an answer. I think you should travel to Russia. <laughs> um... People who were alive at the time, um, interview them and find out the truth. I mean, not that hard. It's weird that we spoke about conspiracy theories before we started recording because yeah, 
this is a very conspiracy theory type ending of you can you can go by the official documents and like okay yeah he's dead but then it's also or is he <laughs> well he, he probably is now but did he did he he's survive russia if he's not he's like <laughs> <laughs> he's holding on to more than one secret if he's still alive right now <laughs> he he's that strong at self-preservation he's even cheated death (laughs) he's currently in his 85th year of the longest monopoly game on record with the grim reaper i just like to think that the reaper turned up and he quickly slipped on his dog collar and went look over there and then ran away yep (laughs) (laughs) seems legit but yeah i i really enjoyed this story but it wasn't until i was halfway through that i thought i'm I'm never going to be able to pronounce any of this because because <laughs> it's like this is really good but russia oh no <laughs> they they put letters together that the english would never do and we have no idea how to pronounce it <laughs> but i i just thought it was very interesting because i'd never heard of this guy or this secret plot to try and overthrow the bolshevik government no it was uh, a new person and a lot of new uh new facts about the world yeah and it just reinforces that Peace times are, are really not peace times. Governments are always trying to screw each other over. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I was talking about the Q Anon- Anonymous podcast that I listened to. Yes. Um, they found um, an article in, I can't remember the exact the exact title, but it was something to do with Harvard Law. Mm. Uh, and it was a guy who was looking at United States intervention in South America. And so he basically looked up all the times covertly and, and non-covertly the U.S. had intervened um, mm. in 100 years. And it was 41 times, <laughs> average of every 28 months. And then all of a sudden it stopped. And the the guys who ran the podcast were like, yeah, well, it stopped at that point. But have you looked at interventionist rates in uh, the Middle East since then? Mm. They didn't stop intervening. They just stopped intervening in South America. Yeah, yeah. and And most governments do that. Well, you know, whilst uh, whilst I don't, you know, the whole notion of a deep state or a deep deep government smacks of smacks of paranoia to me. But never be fooled that your government is not doing horrific stuff every day of the week that you will never find out about. Mm-hmm. They um they actually did a TV miniseries about Sidney Riley. Oh, really? Yeah, um, a 1983 series that won a BAFTA in '84, and uh, Sidney was played by Sam Neill. Wow, have you seen it? I have not. I'm. I'd like to try and track it down. Mm. Um, just popping a little picture on the Skype thing, like the the first picture you can find on like image search for it. He just looks like James Bond in his tux and oh, yeah. he does, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of uh, the vibe I think they were going for with it. But there's there's some interesting pictures of Sam Neill um, in the role and like various suave suits and like it looks like some military disguises and things and it being a mini series i think they took a bit of time with it rather than condense it into a movie so it'll be i'm gonna try and definitely gonna try and track it down probably be on youtube or something ah uh, yeah yeah interesting story thank you so much no no i'm glad you found it interesting yeah i think there's a book about him as well or if, well there's a few books yeah it's interesting whether he did embellish everything or yeah, and what his mo- I, I struggled to work out what his motivations were. Yeah, was he doing it for the money? Was he doing it for the glory? It seems like at some stages he was clearly out to make money. Mm. Um, 
But then why did he go if that was actually, you know, then he decided to go back to try and rescue his friends. I mean, yeah. that seemed incredibly out of character. Yeah, it's that's the point where when he's he's barely gotten out alive after their failed coup and the government are like, you've got to go back. You think most people, especially someone who's just out to serve themselves, would be like, no, that's it, I'm done. Well, and Ke- unless he had like, unless he had sort of like, you know, narcissist, you know, one of these, you know, megalomania or something where he really did feel like he could get away with it all. Yeah, could be he'd gotten away with so much before, even to the point where like, this is your safest way out of Russia. It's like, no, I'm just going to go the most direct way. And, th- and then he walked out fine. It's like he's proven time and time again that he can do the impossible. So why can't you keep doing that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What's that quote? You have to get lucky every time and you have to get lucky once. I just want to know what his real origin story is. Yeah. Because that might hold some answers as well. Because mm. if he's from, if he is from Russia and then depending on who his family was and his background, it might, you know, have some, have some more reasons why he keeps going back to Russia. Maybe there's something deeper there. Yeah. I mean, he obviously doesn't have any loyalty to them considering he was trying to overthrow um, the government and stuff. And he was working, actively working against Russia. Mm. Um He's a mystery. He's an international man of mystery. Yeah, the Ace of Spies. Not a bad nickname. Yeah, pretty good, in fact. Well, if people enjoyed this and want to find you online or, or listen to more of your stuff, where can they do that? Um, Basically, still just Facebook. Um, other things that are possibly happening are still in the possibly stage, not the actual stage. <laughs> Nice. At least it's still in the possibly stage and not in the nah stage. That's true. Always be positive. Indeed. Cool. Well, listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on social media. We have a Twitter and Instagram account, which is at eccentric underscore earth. And our Facebook is www.facebook.com forward slash eccentric earth. If you want to write in with any suggestions for episodes or to give us any feedback or to get in contact with us for any reason, our email address is eccentricearth at outlook.com. We're on all major podcast providers and YouTube, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review because it really does help us find new listeners. We're also now part of the Brit Pod Scene Network, which has dozens of amazing British podcasts. So go and check them out to see if you can find another new show to listen to. Congratulations on that, by the way. Oh, thank you. Well, Han, thank you for coming on the show again. Thank you for having me. That was a really um, interesting topic. And uh, um, yeah, not dark. (laughs) Yeah, even, well, yeah, some nasty stuff happened, but not too dark. (laughs) Well, thank you everyone for listening and we will catch you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Bye.